Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I'm delighted to have my longtime uh, friend and colleague, uh, Philip Bess, here with me today. Phil, it's great to see you. It's been a long time since we've talked. Uh, it has been. It's great to see you too, Kevin. Uh, Phil and I uh, first got to work together or know each other uh, years ago when I think the first time was you organize, You were part of the charrette, the design charrette that was organized in Ada, Michigan uh, with our friend John Anderson, John Anderson. Uh, which has yep. been, a, been a minute or so ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Golly. I can't, so at, refresh my memory now. At that time, were you teaching at Andrews or were you in Chicago? What was what was going on? Okay, so I was I was living in Chicago and teaching at Andrews. I okay. taught at Andrews from 1993 to 2003 through 2003. And first two years there, I was a visitor, and then I became a permanent faculty member. And so I think the charrette was in 1999. That sounds right, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And which was also the first time that John and I had ever worked together. Yeah. So it was a real it, it was it was a real ad hoc. Uh, Situation. We learned a lot we uh, did. in eight. I think we gave them. I think we gave them good work, but we, we also learned a lot. And it was the origin of the infamous dog bark plan. So, do you remember the dog bark plan? <laughs> no, no. I, I'm losing grain size. Remind me. <laughs> so, and, and this this became a little legend in our many new urbanist charrettes afterwards. But it was uh, at one point it it was decided. Um, so this was a charrette in a rural area outside Grand Rapids. And it was uh, to look at basically how the area could develop in a more uh, village-oriented or pedestrian-friendly um, manner. And at one point, it was decided that somebody needed to draw the plan of what would happen if it would just all build out as kind of typical suburban development. Do you remember that part? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That absolutely. That was yeah. a, that was part of the mo. And yep. there was like in many charrettes, there was a dog who was part of the charrette and just hanging out the whole time. Uh, and when that plan uh, was started uh, printing out of the oversized printer so that we could display it, the dog started barking at it. <laughs> and so <laughs> henceforth, anytime we were in a charrette that we wanted to draw, here's what's going to happen if we don't change anything. Here's the typical sprawl plan. It became known as the dog bark plan. So. The dog bark plan. Yeah. yeah. So I, I must have been... Um, you know, at some uh, smaller uh, intra-charette meeting, getting harangued by the uh, head of the, the school superintendent of the public schools, that uh, that that, <laughs> that, their, that their that their suburban mo was non-negotiable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another lesson learned. Yes. It was, it was that and uh, and constructed wetlands. Oh God, uh, yes. Were, uh, yeah. There were, there were, anyway, good times. We did learn a lot there. Uh, and, you know, and many things that we were able to later on deal with and correct in other projects. But absolutely. Uh, it's the only way you learn. So, Phil, for the then for the last 20 years or so, you've been teaching at uh, Notre Dame, right? Correct. Yeah. Since 2000. It'll be 20 years in January. And uh, and you're actually getting ready to retire. Uh, I'm going to call it officially, I'm going to go emeritus okay. in, uh, uh, on July 1st. All right. So. so why don't you talk a little bit, I just, you know, for anybody who doesn't know you, what you have been doing at Notre Dame. I mean, you were, uh, I've always, we've had many, many conversations over the years. And uh, one of the things that is unique about the, the teaching that you've done and the work that you've done is you are, um, for just lack of better terms, we can define them or say whatever you want, but more of a traditionalist in terms of your approach to urban design and architecture. 
in a world of academia where that's incredibly rare. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and you've taught both on the urban design and the architecture front, is that right? Uh, yes, uh, although primarily on the urban design uh, front. And, and it's interesting, this was something that um, uh, I began developing an interest in in the, uh, uh, the mid 80s. And uh, I taught uh, as a visitor in a variety of places during the 80s. And the 80s was a period of time when you could actually, uh, to, be a, to, be a, to be a traditional architect and a traditional urbanist uh, was not automatically disqualifying in academia. Uh, and that lasted from about the, the late 70s when I'd started school uh, until about 1990. And in 1990, the door kind of slammed shut for uh, traditional architects doing visiting things. And um, I actually uh, uh, did some odd jobs in, uh, over a period of a couple of years. And then I, I, uh, I, I went to work at Andrews as a visitor, which didn't really have a program. A seventh, little Seventh-day Adventist school in Southwest Michigan that, that had a new program, but it didn't really have a, a culture of architecture. And, and, uh, uh, and, and over the course of 10 years with, um, you know, the, the working with um, uh, Lou Seibold uh, and some other folks at Andrews who were, who were really uh, uh, quite good colleagues, uh, we nurtured uh, a program there. Um, uh, Andrew Von Maher uh, and a number of other people uh, who, who came through the program and who eventually became, um, they took over uh, a lot of the teaching leadership in the program and, and just uh, really made it good uh, in the, uh, they won all kinds of CNU awards and, and, uh, and they really, um, I want to, I want to say they put Andrews on the map, but, you know, but Andrews isn't really interested in being on the map. Andrews <laughs> is interested in, in doing good work. They kind of go out of their way to, to not be on the map, but, it, but the work was so good that they, that it couldn't go unnoticed. And then I, and then I went to Notre Dame, um, uh, 20 years ago, and, but it, but, but beginning at Andrews and then also beginning at Andrews, uh, I was interested and I was working with colleagues who were interested in trying to make a coherent architectural curriculum, um, that, that engaged both, uh, durable construction, uh, at Andrews, it wasn't so much classical, although, um, uh, when Andrew, uh, came and, and started working there, he, he extended the program because he had done a, a master's degree at, uh, at Notre Dame uh, mm -hmm. before he came and he'd gotten uh, classical training, he and his wife, Kristen. And, um, and so uh, for reasons I won't go into here, there's, there's, there's less interest in classical architecture at Andrews than at Notre Dame, but there's a lot of interest in composition, right? And so, so the Andrews students didn't pursue classical architecture per se, but they were pursuing uh, building good, uh, you know, durable uh, and, and beautiful building that, that was really informed by rules of classical composition. And as importantly, if not more importantly, they were looking at uh, architecture and building in the context of human settlements. Mm -hmm. And that was another interesting issue because uh, Adventists don't have a real, um, uh, I would say, affection for big cities. Uh, but they, they, you know, in, in sort of working out the nature of the curriculum, they recognized that the the physical form of city neighborhoods and the physical form of small towns, it was the same basic kind of structure with mm -hmm. the only difference being not even, not even extent, but uh, um, you know, geographic extent, but, but of, of being density. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and, and also they recognize that they recognize the small town 
uh, as a physical form of community and, and that the urban neighborhood was as well. And, and because they are themselves a community, they kind of got the, the, the relationship between uh, the, the urban design or the town planning, however you want to, you walkable mixed use settlements. They got the, the, the connection between that and the good architecture. And, and so going to Notre Dame for me was, uh, I went with mixed feelings because the, 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 uh, the situation at Andrews, I really, um, uh, it was a really good, good bunch of people at Andrews that were doing really good work. But Notre Dame was um, an opportunity to grow the graduate program. Hmm. Uh, and so the first 10 years that I was at, at Notre Dame, I was the director of, of graduate studies. And we uh, initiated a curriculum that uh, kind of focused both on their classical architecture uh, practices of about 10 or 15 years when I got there and, uh, and urban design. And at Notre Dame, it's a little, it's a little weird because you'd think there'd be this close connection between uh, traditional architecture and traditional urbanism, but there, there wasn't, there was some division uh, about that. And I tried uh, with some success, but, but also not completely successful to uh, kind of bring both of those sensibilities into play within the graduate curriculum. So um, uh, I stepped down from that uh, not entirely voluntarily, uh, <laughs> about, about 10 years ago. Um, but, but the, those emphases, uh, remain, I yeah. think, uh, on classical and, and we call it classical and traditional architecture and urbanism because we can't come up with a more concise yeah, that's a mouthful. definition that everyone can agree on. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's a mouthful. Well, there's, uh, there's a number of things I want to talk about today, including our shared interest in baseball, but I do want to talk a little bit about academia first, because it's, I suppose it's just more of a personal thing for me. You know, I've often tried to describe for people um, the bizarre world that uh, architecture school is and architectural education. Uh, I think most normal people would think that you go to college and you're learning all about, you're basically just learning the basics of building and construction and you know, how to lay out spaces and everything else. And they have no idea that it's basically like a Stalinist groupthink uh, cult uh, that pursues one design uh, process or one design aesthetic. Uh, and I'm curious why, uh, with all the years that you've had in academia now, you talked about how the change that happened in the early 90s that really uh, kind of closed the door to a lot of architects who don't see the world that way, uh, who want to, who really appreciate the traditions of architecture that we had for hundreds of years. Why, why do you think, um, that is, why did that happen? And, and, you know, from what, from your perspective, why is there such a, such a strong cult of, uh, just strictly contemporary or modern architecture in academia? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even really characterize it as modern uh, or modernist architecture, and 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 here's why. And this is a kind of a, uh, if it becomes too academic, uh, uh, an answer you you don't hesitate to cut me off. <laughs> but but so I have a theory. So there so postmodernism right was a kind of architecture culture, architecture school culture revolt against modernism. Uh, that uh, and a modernism that had been an avant garde thing and that had become a, a kind of corporate American thing. Um, mm-hmm. became the architecture of, of, you know, of Manhattan and, right. and Chicago, you know, developers and, 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 um, and so the postmodernism, uh, you know, resulted in a certain degree of freedom where you could engage history again, but you sort of engaged history, 
in a grab bag sort of way. And so you could be a, a kind of traditionalist postmodernist, or you could be you could be a uh, a kind of deconstructionist postmodernist, but, uh, but you could but you could allude to things, and so all of that existed, you know, in the context of of the um, of this fifteen year period or so between about nineteen seventy five and nineteen ninety, and then um, the modernists kind of closed ranks, and I want to say, and and so the kind of standard narrative about what postmodern architecture is is that postmodern architecture was this transitional period between uh, sort of modernism one and modernism two, uh, and that it was kind of a silly season and we're just going to do away with it. And so, uh, and, and, and especially we do away with sort of the historical uh, interests and concerns and, uh, and even the study of history uh, to, to a large degree. Hmm. And that that's, that's kind of the narrative that exists within, within architecture school is that postmodern architecture was a transitional thing. But my take is a little different, which is that, and, and it's interesting. So Nathan Glazer, uh, who was this um, uh, public intellectual, uh, he was a kind of, he was a kind of a neocon. In other words, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was, an, uh, he was a Harvard sociologist and uh, a Democrat, um, generally, um, you know, a, a, what do I say, an FDR, uh, you know, kind of, um, kind of liberal and, uh, and a modernist. And he was a contemporary and a friend of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, and, uh, and he had a real interest in cities and he wrote this book, which is a collection of his essays. The book was called, uh, from a cause to a style modernism and modernism and the history of American planning or something like that. Modernism in the city, in the American city. And, but the basic thing, it was this collection of essays that he'd done over about 20 years. And it was really interesting to see the trajectory because he talks about, he says, he self-identifies as a modernist uh, and he writes, uh, you know, a little bit later he starts realizing, he starts writing about the, the, the bad effects of modernism on cities. And he, he had, like, I think he had, he'd been, he'd grown up in, in Manhattan or at least in, in New York City. Uh, he taught at Cambridge. He was active. Uh, in Washington, D.C. and public policy kinds of things. And so he had a lot to say about the physical environs of, of those three major East Coast cities. And, and it was evident in the trajectory that he was having real reservations about modernism and their effects upon the physical form of the city and kind of the character. And the, the, it was just and and the, and so the 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 basic thesis and what he was lamenting was that modernism, which had been this revolutionary, uh, you know, ideology um, had all of a sudden become this kind of corporate bland thing. It was just a stylistic thing. And he was trying to write about that. And, uh, and he's at, you know, asking himself the question of how that happened. And toward the end, he's starting to say things like, and, you know, you notice that these old, you know, American city, beautiful, you know, buildings and their compositions and their, their little ur urbanistic, uh, uh, interventions that that these still stand up and they still really you know, work really well and you can see that he was kind of on the verge because uh, he says when he starts he says uh, he says confesses to being a modernist he says when when you're young who's not um and, and <laughs> which is kind of true as he so. it's kind of true absolutely it, and it appeals and so, to the idealistic nature of young people right yeah right well and and of course and everybody who who all the people who started the new urbanism were mm -hmm. educated as modernists yep, right and absolutely. so they were kind of seeing so so what he what he was experiencing is what is what a lot of us were experiencing and uh anyway to so my but my sense then is that 
what what modernism today is is not modernism. So so the the modernism that that um, uh, Glazer was was describing it was he described it in somewhat the same terms that Colin Rowe did, which was it it had a telos, it had an end, it had a view of history, it had a, a notion of progress, it sought a utopia, and so you know Rowe made a distinction between the kind of the classical utopia that was transcendental and it was ideal references and it wasn't it wasn't expected to be realized in history except as these kinds of collages you know as fragments but uh, but that for the modern for the modernists it was a political program and it turned out to be a bad political program for two reasons one is that it, the, the environment was kind of ugly and the other was that it was kind of totalitarian mm -hmm. and and so um, uh, modernist modernism too, I should say, yeah, modernism too is really what I would characterize as hypermodernism. That so that modernism and and the tradition had in common a, an end, a telos, but the new modernism, or what I call hypermodernism, does not. That that hypermodernism is not teleological. It's entirely about self-expression. Mm -hmm. It's entirely about novelty. It's entirely about doing something that that hasn't been done before. And 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 the inference that I draw is that it's modernism, not postmodernism, that was the transitional period. Hmm. And that we're in this period now of um, of uh, basically laissez it's basically the the architectural education and the architectural avant-garde is basically novelty in form making. But what's what's related to modernism about it is it still uses modern modernist methods uh, materials and means of construction. Mm -hmm. And, but the, but the difference is that for modernism, that was actually part of the ideology. That was a, that was a charged thing. And the, the hypermodernists of today, they just take it for granted that this is how you build. And it has all these bad adverse environmental, uh, problems, but it also, it, it, it creates a kind of incoherent public realm that is really a kind of symbol of crony capitalism. Cause it's not just capitalism. It's not just totalitarian government. Mm -hmm. It's, it's capitalism and, and the government working together to make, you know, to make this kind of environment. So right. um, that's what we're fighting. So in the, in, in, the, <laughs> in the context of that, what's it been like to uh, work with students? Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it, you're, you're, you're working with them on a totally different language and approach and in, in theory. Uh, and obviously both the schools that you've taught at Andrews and Notre Dame, but we just, we both know from personal experience, many, many graduates who've gone on to really tremendous success, uh, who, uh, uh, have found their niche in the world, uh, working, uh, with architecture, uh, in a different way than is promoted in the standard in the profession. Uh, so do, I mean, does it feel a bit like you're, does it feel like you're a revolutionary? Does it feel like you're just fighting the good fight or is it just, you know, you're, you're doing something every day that you uh, believe in and, and enjoy and that's all there is to it. Well, it, it feels like we're, it feels like we're for the world, right? We're for, we're for truth, goodness, beauty. We're for the world against the world or we're against the world as it is yeah. on behalf of the form of the world that we, that we uh, hope to hope to make. And the interesting thing about education and, and Notre Dame is that, um, and I think this is true of Andrews too. I mean, I haven't been at Andrews for, for 20 years, although obviously I keep tabs. Mm -hmm. But the uh, graduates of Andrews and of Notre Dame have no trouble getting jobs in the profession. That they, they, they are in demand, they get higher, they get higher starting salaries. 
I mean, that's just a kind of a mark, though, of what they can do because <laughs> they they pass the licensing exams with you know much higher frequency, first attempt. They and so they're really they're really ready to work when they go into these offices. And the offices themselves, they were still kind of a, a little. They're not a niche thing. They're, they've actually grown those number of offices. But just to, if you take the the Notre Dame Career Fair, the, the annual Career Fair, we have every year about sixty graduates, and we get about seventy firms hmm. that come and and are looking, you know, to hire our graduates. And so um, I, I want to say that the the it, they're doing good work in the world, and and they're ready to do it. And and some are more. And again, I, again, I, I think there's we have sort of two personality types. One type just Kind of wants to make beautiful things in whatever context they can make them, and then there's the type that, that really do want to want to change the world. And we like to try to convey to them that those two things aren't you know aren't antithetical. But but I th- that's my sense of the the personality types that that come through, and I love them all. Yeah. But uh, it, it's um, uh, I want to say that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. You know, the, <laughs> the work the work is so there's so much work to do, and so few people doing it. And the real frustration is that that we're experiencing, I've been experiencing, especially uh, with some students who've, who've come through the program and, and who are, you know, very, they're very enthusiastic about their vocation as architects and, and urbanists and as builders. It's that there's so many working parts. I mean, sprawl is such a, uh, it is such a snafu. It is such a cluster F mm-hmm. uh, of institutions and practices that, that it's just very hard to hit uh, hit it systemically, and so it. I think that the the way to the way to have success at it. The, the only way that I can think of to have success at it on a sustained basis is to find places that are a little below the radar that have good bones, and you know you go in and you find a way to to become a part of the community. Right? You don't become part of the. Mm-hmm. You don't. You don't. Uh, you know, you're not the you're not the hero swooping in from on high, but you're you, you're in a place for 30 years, 40 years, and you're actually doing design development stuff. I mean, the models are people like like Dan Camp or like um, um, Robert Davis or, you know, but pe- people who are sort of embedded uh, in a place. And um, anyway, so it, it's a it's a long term cultural project. And yeah. we're you know, we're, we're turning it over to, to the young people. Yeah. So. And, you know, even if I was just to give a plug uh, for Notre Dame, for Andrews too. I mean, I think what you speak to was my experience as a former employer and, you know, I hired a Andrews grad who was phenomenal. Uh, the Notre Dame people, I just recently had Jen Settle and Jen Griffin on the podcast oh, here. I mean, the, super. And the work, uh, obviously Dan Parolik's a good friend. Um, the quality of the work that they produce as graduates just far exceeds even, even irrespective of what you think of the designs or themselves, the quality of the work uh, that comes out of the school is incredible. Uh, And they, they seem to be students that are much, much more prepared, prepared to really contribute uh, to working in a company right away. Uh, And so, I mean, that's just kind of been my experience. Yeah. Well, and, and you know the the thing that we're proud of, I think, you know, and and in some ways, I mean, we aspire to is that it's not only that they, it's not only that they come out knowing how to design well, but they they understand the the legal context into which they're going. They they understand the kinds of the kinds of things that need to be done in preparation or to make it possible to do walkable mixed use human settlements that in most places remain illegal. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. Have you uh, been in touch with or followed uh, colleagues that are trying to have been establishing a program here nearby at uh, Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is interesting. There are a number of other schools that are trying to do traditional uh, programs. I mean, and and it's it's interesting because it really it, it also underscores it it underscores two things: both with the interest and the importance of the institutional context. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what we're finding somewhat dismayingly uh, is that the uh, even where there's something that gets established, it it doesn't necessarily have legs, right? Uh, that and so uh, I know there was a you know there was a wonderful program that Chris Miller uh, ran at, at Judson, mm-hmm. um, but but he there wasn't as much institutional support as as he needed, uh, and you know Benedictine is is still you know is still early on. We had a lot of students undergrads uh, from Benedictine, and they're excellent. Uh, you know uh, I don't know if you ever knew Paul Monson. I don't think so. Uh, he, uh, he was uh, one of our early uh, Notre Dame grads, and uh, uh, and he's a Latter Day Saint, and he's um, uh, out in Utah running a, a traditional urban design program, a pretty thorough one, from what I can mm. tell from the work that they're doing uh, at Utah Valley State, U- Utah Valley University, mm. which is a, a, a state school, but it's again, it's a little, it's a little below the radar. Uh, Catholic U has initiated um, a. Uh, uh, a new classical program. It's kind of runs in parallel with their longstanding modernist program. Um, but this is all good in part because um, uh, it's opportunities for Notre Dame grads to teach. And uh, that I was going to say, you know, our, our, our graduates get jobs in offices, but academia is basically closed hmm. to them. Hmm. And so the exceptions are some of these, some of these newer, newer schools. Interesting. So, yeah, so we're, you know, I mean, and really what we need to be doing and, 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 you know, our, 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 you know, new Dean, actually he's, he's not that new anymore. Stephanos Palazoides recognizes that, that, you know, we need to be in a certain way seeding uh, other institutions. I, that sounds like we're, you know, kind of more important than, than probably what we actually are, but, but just getting, um, getting more people, uh, who who sort of understand uh, walkable mixed use urbanism and its relationship to architecture? Getting those kinds of people into academic programs where where they're more than just a visitor and they have one studio because it it really takes some formation. The kind of thing that you were describing about the people who come into your office and are kind of ready to go um, that is a that's a result of a curriculum where they get introduced to concepts at an early age. They get reinforced throughout the curriculum. They're, they're reinforced by their travel uh, and they're reinforced by the complexity of the projects that they do as they go through the curriculum. So that when you like I have students read Space and Anti-Space by right. Steve Peterson in every class that I teach. And and when you're when you're having the signing to freshmen, their eyes glaze over. They don't know <laughs> what in the world he's talking about. And then the, they read it the second time and uh, or they hear someone else talking about it and they know they've heard these terms. And so they they perk up a little bit and they read it for the third time. And they, oh, I'm. I get some of this and then you take them someplace, you know, you show them Rome or you show them, you know, a a spatial city, uh, a traditional city, and, and they, they have a way to understand, right. What they're looking at. And then they come back and they're doing an urban design project and they're ready to design, you know, using, using those tools informed by both their, their, the things that they've read and the things that they've seen and the things, and I should say the things that they've drawn. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's, uh, 
I want to shift and tie together our interests in traditional design and baseball for a little bit, uh, just because we have such a fantastic shared history uh, in this world. Uh, and and uh, the World Series <laughs> and the World Series just wrapped up, so the timing is uh, perfect. The Rangers are world champs with a pretty remarkable run. And uh, yeah. how about Corey Seager? You know, two-time oh, World goodness. Series MVP, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, yep. Really, really exciting. I mean, uh, uh, and again, Texas, one of those teams that had never won a World Series. Yeah. And had lost lost two heartbreakers, right? One pitch away. Yeah. Right. Like two years in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's 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 heartbreaking. Although I and, and I should say as a Cub fan, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Yeah. So, well, I, but, you know, as a Cub fan, and, and as a Royals fan, and, so. you know, I'm a Royals fan. We, we both have been blessed with having World Series champs in you know, fairly recent years. So back to back. Yeah. So we, we've had those successes, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, it is and, nice. and it covers, covers a lot of pain. Hopefully they will come again at some point right now. Our, our team is looking as dreadful as they probably ever have, but uh, you know, these, it, that's just kind of the ups and downs of baseball. Um, yep. So, yep. you know, I, I can't remember how many people I have given your book city baseball magic to uh, that you wrote uh, quite a long time ago now. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving sort of a Cliff Snows version of your thoughts. You, you wrote this book at the time when the the White Sox were uh, bu- going to build a new ballpark, New Comiskey. Uh, at right. the time, I don't even know what it's called these days. Um, uh, guaranteed Rate Field. Okay. Time being. Guaranteed Rate Field. <laughs> what a name. It has an arrow pointing down. It's supposed to be <laughs> low interest rates, but but you can't miss the the symbolism of the the White Sox performance. It's 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 tragic comic. That's but, fantastic. Uh, um, uh, but so you really. put together this book that was basically like a counter proposal to that, and and I wonder if you could just take a minute and talk about what what your thinking was at the time. Uh, yeah. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's kind of a warm up for my professional life, for my vocation, um, which was I had come to Chicago uh, uh, from a modernist program at Virginia. I worked in uh, I worked for Helmut Jan uh, and was really miserable there. They, they were very talented at doing you know, what they what they do. Um, I, I had a lot to learn. And but I wasn't I realized that I, I I wasn't enthusiastic about the about the city that it was making, but I was, I was still trying to sort all of those things out. I eventually I left there after about three and a half years, and worked in another office for about a year, and then then left left that as well, and, and just tried to begin cobbling together uh, a way to make a living. But I in in that time I had, and this was owing to my owing to um, my architectural education. And owing to the fact that I'd lived in Boston for four years prior to going to architecture school and owing to being a Cub fan. Uh, and even though I had never been to Wrigley until I was 21 years old, hmm. uh, but I went to Fenway a lot when I was in Boston and I had no way of kind of understanding or explaining the difference between uh, those kinds of ballparks and Dodger Stadium, where I had seen most of my games, and then, but then all the other places that were the concrete donuts from the from the '60s and, and, and early '70s, and um, and architecture school kind of gave me a vocabulary uh, for thinking about that. I recognized that uh, just looking at it, that oh, of course, um, Fenway is the way that it is, Wrigley is the way that it is, because they're uh, constrained by ordinary city blocks, and the, and these the shapes of these blocks and you know, they varied. I mean, the, the big difference between Fenway and, and Wrigley. And, and I 
it got me interested in going back and looking at the the generation of ballparks of which Wrigley and Fenway were part were part. So that from 1909 uh, to 1923, there were, gosh, I can't remember, it was 14 or 15 ballparks that were built. And some of them, uh, and these were these were the first um, concrete and steel, mm. and they were really steel frame parks on concrete foundations, but they were fireproof. That was the, that was the big deal because the, the ballparks prior to, you know, to the early 20th century were wooden. Uh, they had their origins in the mid, mid 19th century, but the wooden ones burned a yeah. lot. And so it was a big deal to start making these, um, these uh, fireproof stadiums and they were built on city blocks. And interestingly enough, this being the period of the American City Beautiful, uh, a lot of them were classical, right. right in their in their facades and their and their ornamentation, which is interesting because it, it's not they're not classical in the sense it's a weird it's a weird stadium to think of it as a as a classical yeah. thing, but you know they were making what they were making train stations out of Roman baths, right? Yeah. So at the time, and pretty good ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, I just I did a study of that, and I wrote a, I wrote an essay for the University of Illinois Chicago uh, uh, Architecture School uh, annual publication uh, called uh, what was it called? It was called From Elysian Fields to Dome Stadiums. It yeah. was a history of of ballparks, and um, <laughs> uh, and anyway, it got the attention of of some people, and um, and I thought, well, when I when I kind of went out on my own, I thought, you know. Because I realized that this is a, this is all this is all introduction, right? This is that the White Sox were um, talking about building a new ballpark, and I knew that they were going to build that. What they wanted was a replica of uh, Royal Stadium. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, they wanted it in in the, in the western suburbs. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf loved uh, loved uh, Kauffman Stadium, and um, and uh, and they they lost the referendum. Uh, and so they made a deal with the city that they would build uh, a new ballpark across the street from uh, the old Comiskey Park. And although they kept it kind of under wraps, they, 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 we knew that that's where it was going to go because we'd seen things in the paper, but they denied that a site had been chosen. But everybody knew where I knew where it was anyway. And they they um, uh, and this is a little bit under wraps, but I could I could see what was coming. And I thought, OK, well, how would we how would you do a. a a traditional, how would you do a ballpark in a traditional neighborhood? Because this is this was the point about not it wasn't just that Wrigley and Fenway were on city blocks, is that they were on city blocks in the context of neighborhoods, right? There was a it was a traditional walkable mixed-use neighborhood, often on a on a streetcar line or a subway line or, or, right. or something. Which like is that. which by the way is different from the way we talk about ballparks, let's say in the last 30 years, as the downtown uh, ballpark. Uh, right. Those right, traditional right. parks that you're talking about weren't really in the downtowns of those cities. No, no, they were they were they were on the periphery of the city, but they were they were in, you know they were in a neighborhood in a network of streets and blocks. Yeah, and um, so yeah, so so the 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 proposition was to do a counter proposal uh, to show how a, a contemporary baseball park, because baseball parks at the time and and then and now are built to make money, and and the the money. Uh, driver at the time was the creation of luxury suites. And so the the challenge was to make uh, a traditional ballpark in a traditional neighborhood. And there's a, the other thing is the issue of scale, right? Because the, the new ballparks are about 50% larger in footprint 
and about three times as large in terms of square footage and volume. And, uh, and so our, uh, our objective was to show how you could make a new ballpark that was compact and that could uh, generate the same amount of revenue and could be done uh, in a way that was better for the city and that would work in the city. And so we tried a couple of years to get grants, finally got one from the Graham Foundation, a small one that got a bigger one from the, the National, uh, Arts and, National Endowment for the Arts, uh, who were actually very helpful. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who was the head of it because she's been on Notre Dame uh, boards and things. Um, I'm blanking on her name anyway. Um, but uh, got that and, you know, uh, hired a couple of people and we worked, uh, you know, we made models and drawings and everything and, and uh, presented it publicly. Uh, the White Sox were completely uninterested. I had this sense that, that and, and this is before the new urbanism, but I had this sense that that good urbanism, uh, a lot of people were suspicious of it because they had their own particular interests, but that it, but that it actually could solve a lot of common problems uh, in an in an urban kind of way, and and so part of my thought in all this was as I was doing the work, I was trying to identify all the stakeholders that I could think of uh, that that were involved with that, and it was all, it was the preservationists, and it was the parks district people, and it was the aldermen, and it was. You know, it was it was the White Sox, but I mean, there were there were a dozen at least, twelve to fifteen stakeholders that I identified, and I had a series of meetings with them sequentially, one at a time, right? Mm. And and uh, and it was only in retrospect later that I that I realized that, that I was trying, I was I was moving toward the idea of a charrette, <laughs> but the problem, but but I was using kind of the old assumption that you could do this one at a time, and and and. And that what you and, 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 you know, later on in life, realize that what you need to do is you need to get the, the people, the stakeholders in the room so that you can do all of this stuff. They can evaluate it. You can have you know, serious conversations and all that. Anyway, that that was kind of interesting. But the uh, it didn't it didn't go anywhere. But I, I wrote it up and published it. Uh, it was published by Steve Lehman at the Minneapolis Review of Baseball, <laughs> which was modeled after the, the New York Review of Books. Interesting. Uh, it's a great. It was a great little publication out of out of Minneapolis, and we made we made he made he 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 printed it in the journal, and then he he did a, a couple of thousand uh, off prints that we mailed out to sports writers and uh, and public officials. And uh, John Norquist saw it and invited me up to to do a a proposal for um, for Milwaukee, but working with in in. NJTB, NBTJ, H- it was the- Oh, and was that NBBJ? NBB, no, 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 no. It was H- HNTB? It's HNTB. Yeah, okay. yeah my firm <laughs> all these, years all, ago. That's right, yeah. So, well, and HNTB was the, you know, they were the mothership, right, yeah. of, of HOK Sport. And then, uh, no, NBBJ was out in Seattle. I did yeah, some yeah. consulting work for Seattle out there. But but all of that was in education too, because uh, John- uh, you know, felt himself kind of a little, I would say a little hamstrung. I mean, he, he, he put me to work with them, which is just not possible. <laughs> and so I wound up doing a, uh, you know, uh, we, we, I just, I just did a kind of little independent study on that, but, but that, that kind of, actually that sort of set off, that was in that period of the late, late eighties and early nineties, right. When, when, uh, teaching jobs were, were drying up. And so I was kind of making my living that way in a sense. But I spent, I, I, I went two or three years trying to kind of go head to head with HOK, which mm-hmm. is, is a severe headache. Um, it's, a, it's a severe headache because they had, it just, 
Um, anyway, because because they were they were a client friendly architect, and I guess I wasn't. Um, I was an ideologist. I was an urbanist. Anyway, it's it's um, it was republished again in '99. Um, the White Sox went ahead and built their thing. It, it's it's interesting. I get a I, I every year and a half or so I get a call from a journalist right who's just discovered it and they want to do a, a long feature story on the ballpark that could have been. Huh. Uh, it's, it's just, it's really, it's, it's really weird. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not so vain as to, uh, let's see, I'm vain enough, right. That, that I'll follow, you know, blogs and stuff that write about these things. So I know that there's, there are a lot of people out there who actually, uh, know the project and, and baseball fans who, who, who like it. So I, you know, I'm, you know, you, and it probably helps. I'm hoping, I'm hoping you'll get a chance. You know? <laughs> and it probably helps the cause that New Comiskey turned out to be a pretty horrible stadium. And, well, yeah, and, no, that's the point. That's yeah. the point. They, they, yeah, it's not just that they see the see the counter proposal. Mm-hmm. It's that they they look at the reality and they say, "Oh my God, this is, you know, it didn't have to be this way." Right. So, but the good. So then, one of one of the many good outcomes of that was it eventually led to a group in Boston uh, to give you a call. Uh, and yeah. I wonder if you, I mean, I feel like while we're together, we have to talk about Fenway Park. Uh, we do. So, yeah. which is, I, yeah. I have often told people was probably the lowest paying gig of my career, but, but the one, probably the one that I feel the best about that I will remember forever. Yeah. I, you know, so there were, you know, we, we were, uh, let's see, Kevin and I were, were the, the group of of design professionals that were there, uh, we came to describe ourselves, I guess, or were described as the Fenway Seven, um, and it, and it was interesting because there were uh, people that I had worked with. I was I was the one responsible for putting together the team, and it was people that I'd worked with uh, before, plus a couple of others, plus one guy from uh, from college who just called us up and said, "Can I come work on this?" <laughs> and we were say, "Sure, come on," and. Um, uh, and then there was a group called Save Fenway Park who had been very active. They were very uh, Boston fans are are uh, have a deserved reputation for being uh, intense, mm-hmm. and uh, and they were intense and wonderful. And I, I have to mention specifically uh, Dan Wilson, who who was the head of Save Fenway Park, but also Erica Tarlin, who became kind of our. Mm-hmm. Our, our godmother. Yeah. Um, and still emails us. And, uh, and that's right. No, still, she, she keeps us informed about all the development that's going on around Fenway Park that, yeah. that is, uh, I would say lamentably at scale different than what we had hoped, yeah. but that we had imagined would, would, that the development would, would take place. But um, anyway, it was, uh, again, it's, it's a long story. The, the, the Red Sox ownership, the, the, uh, the Yawkey family had owned the Red Sox uh, until Tom Yawkey died, I think in the late seventies or early eighties, it went into a trust, a 20, with a 20 year lifespan called the Yawkey trust. And around 1999, they began the, you know, approaching the date where they had to sell the trust. Uh, they began lobbying, uh, for a new baseball park that they had to tear Fenway park down, that it was a, it was a liability. And it's a, it's amazing to think that they, that even now that they, that that was seen as a liability, um, although there's a lot of precedent for it. So sure. the, um, the, um, and so Save Fenway Park, uh, went on a campaign, uh, to save Fenway Park and, and eventually our paths crossed. I met with them. They invited me. I told them what I thought, you know, would be a way to proceed that would involve a charrette and would involve people who were 
not only baseball fans, but they were good architects and they and they cared about urbanism and they understood. And again, it's not when you when you just sort of think about urban ballparks on constrained sites, it's not rocket science. You just have to sort of think through the implications of that once you once you see it and and you and and that you're working within constraints. I mean, it's a it's an object lesson in how you make good things out of constraints, how oysters make pearls, mm. you know. And and so um, anyway, we did this ten day thing, and 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 we were underpaid. Uh, but you know, Kevin, you're not the only person that has told me that that this was like the the, the most satisfying experience that they yeah. that they'd had. And I think part of what made it satisfying was that the process was great. Yeah. Uh, and we worked sixteen hour days, and we walked a mile and a half, to, uh, uh, fortunately down Commonwealth Avenue uh, to mm-hmm. the to the venue, and. Um, and what happened was, and this was this was kind of against the tide of, of even the sports writers. The sports writers in Boston were longtime Red Sox fans, proponents of you know dear old Fenway Park, but they they bought in. Uh, by the time we were there, they had bought into the Fenway Park has to be demolished for the sake of the team, for the future of the team, and uh, and so we were we were really isolated uh, and. And we did the work 10 days, presented it publicly. Uh, and then, you know, we, we just kind of waited. And what happened, it was, it, was, it was Providence or it was just a break or whatever, but, but the, the politics changed, right? And the, the expense of the proposal got so great that the, that the state, legislators, state legislature could not, um, they, they, they couldn't support it financially. And so the bottom line was that the the trust sold the team, mm-hmm. and they sold it to a team that was headed by John Henry and who were the other guys? Um, uh, it was the guy who was from San Diego, yeah. and um, anyway, I think an Italian name. What Larry Lu- Lucchese? Is that that sounds no. right. Anyway, anyway, so it was a, it was a it was a kind of triumvirate. But John, um, John, I just said his name, Henry. John Henry. John Henry was the money guy. And he had been the former owner of the Marlins. Anyway, they they bought the team and they said about when they was they were asked about Fenway, they said, we're gonna wait and see. We're gonna take a close look at it and and see what we have. And um and it turned out really well for a lot of reasons. I mean, one was uh uh we had drawings there. They were open to talking to Erica Tarlin. In fact, they hired Erica Tarlin. Uh, of of um, Save Fenway Park, just as an advisor, and she brought with them all these drawings with all these ideas. And I think that the most prominent of them was uh, the the monster seats, yeah, uh, on, on the left field seats, on left field wall. If you know Boston, you you know that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, uh, worth, note, so worth that, noting that that idea came out of our Save Fenway Park charrette. It did, it did, and and it's um, uh, anyway they they uh, they grabbed onto that one first. And they they built those, and in 2003, right, it was the first year that the seats. And we had we had suggested in the charrette that that if they built those seats, which then you might get 300 seats, that they could sell for as high as fifty dollars. Yeah, a seat. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hilarious in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think I think they auction them now. I don't know, <laughs> but um, but. Uh, but they invited us to a, a game at the uh, near the end of the season, and so you know we have pictures of Kevin and Pat Pinnell and, mm-hmm. and uh, Rolanda Giannis. H- Howard Decker couldn't make it, but but uh, uh, and then and then but then they continued doing these incremental changes within the ballpark, and uh, and they're they're not the wealthiest franchise in baseball, but they're in the top two or three, 
and and uh, and the ballpark is a huge moneymaker for them, and it's yeah. and it's led to uh, I would almost say an overdevelopment uh, of the of the real estate uh, around Fenway, but but it it remains a ballpark that is part of um, you know it's a, it's become an, it's it's like a it's like a, a dense urban neighborhood ballpark, and it but it mainly because of its scale and because of its configuration and because of its constraints. So that I would say if I have a professional success story and it's not, it's not just mine, but it's, you know, all the people that participated in it, but, but that's, that's, that's high on my list too, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, well, it was, it was incredible to be a part of it. Even, even though I actually got sick during the charrette, poor, poor Pat Pinnell had to hear me coughing, you know, all night long. I ended up, when I got home, I had diagnosed, I had walking pneumonia. Uh, oh my God. It was, it was a crazy situation, but it, it was totally it's, worth it. And, uh, yeah. The things we do for love. Yeah, right? I, I don't know if you remember, but during the charrette, we also went to a baseball game. Uh, we did. And you remember we were who, doing reconnaissance? Do you remember who the team was they played? The Red Sox played. I don't. It was the Royals. Was it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, this is during the charrette. Yeah. Uh, because I'm trying to remember who they played in the game that we saw, which <sighs> which the Red Sox in the ninth inning. We're down four to two, and their second baseman—I can't remember his name—he became a Cub a year or two later. He had a, a two-run homer, yeah. And then in the tenth, uh, Big Poppy hit a home run, hit a walk-off homer to win it, yeah. And we were watching from the from the seats. Yeah, that's so right. It was that was, was a great game. Something else. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we're having a uh, we're having a stadium discussion again in Kansas City now. Yeah. And uh, we have. Own, relatively new owners. Uh, they bought the team, I guess, about two years ago, uh, led by a, it's a, it's a local group basically led by John Sherman. Uh, but it's really a collection of, uh, 20 or 30, uh, investors. And, uh, they are ready to abandon Kauffman stadium and build a new ballpark. Uh, and they've narrowed it down to two sites, one that's in the downtown and one that's in North Kansas city, which is just across the river. So it's been a fascinating thing to watch uh, across the river in, in in Missouri, in Kansas, in Missouri, in Missouri. Okay. So North Kansas City, Missouri, which is uh, its own municipality, a very small municipality, municipality of about four thousand people, um, but um, uh, with a, you know, it has a nice little downtown, uh, and it's you know it's spitting difference distance from downtown Kansas City, so you can actually get some of those downtown views, but. Um, those are the two sites they've honed in on and, and we're all kind of sitting around now playing a waiting game to see what they're going to announce and how they think they're going to finance it. Uh, all of which will probably be subject to a public vote, uh, down the road, but it's, uh, it's interesting how these things come around. Uh, it, it is interesting how they come around and how they come around in different historic, you know, epics, um, epochs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, because I I was I was kind of an agnostic when I started out in this about new ballparks versus old ballparks and, and historic preservation and also about public financing that these were uh, in my thought these were local political decisions you know that that if the voters were behind it you know it, it would could warrant public funding and I've I've really become a a, a much harder core. Um, opponent of public financing of, of ballparks. And, uh, for one thing, just because the industry standard is so expensive yeah, and, yeah. and for the other thing is that, you know, I've, I've become a, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I, I've become a proponent of, uh, 
of uh, questioning, if not ending, uh, Major League Baseball's uh, monopoly uh, exemption. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm also I hate to say this as a Bears fan. I, I almost because the I wonder if the model isn't community ownership similar to what the Packers yeah. uh, do in Green Bay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a this whole just there's so many things that are that 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 are calling for public attention that I'm not sure that that uh, financing uh, billionaire sports franchises is one of them. Yeah, it's, you know. Uh, but, but I preach, let me stop. No, I mean, it's like so many things, you know, what what used to be privately run endeavors. Um, yeah, absolutely. That were at a certain scale that worked really well in cities and were very competitive. They've now become enormously bloated you know, public-private partnerships where the public really is expected to underwrite you know, an enormous amount of the cost and the risk. Uh, and yet, you know, you have these teams that are, that are all basically owned by billionaires that are reaping the rewards. And it, I mean, right. it's, it's distasteful. It's, a lot of it is, I can't, I can't deny it. Well, it's, it's, yeah, no, it, I mean, it's not just distasteful, but it's also kind of financially problematic. I mean, yeah. the, the two, uh, the Cubs and the Red Sox both own their own ballparks right? yeah. and they, I, to my knowledge, they have not ever received public money for uh, rehabbing their parks. And like this comes out like the, in contrast to the White Sox, which play in a facility where they rent it and it's owned by a state authority. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Cubs and the Red Sox, you know, they, they have all kinds of events that go on there, right? During the year, they have, I saw Springsteen. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm sort of the last guy to see Springsteen uh, <laughs> at Wrigley Field, you know, this this past summer. And and the White Sox can't do that, right? Yeah. That the... That the um, Anyway, it's just it's uh, you when you own you know when you own your own facility you have you have a lot of opportunities but yeah that's a whole it's it, it just I I keep thinking and I have to I have to give Major League Baseball credit um, the their ingenuity because I keep thinking they're going to run into a ceiling right about about the the affordability you know, what they can afford to do before it all kind of comes tumbling down but it's not it's not happening yet I, I I still don't think it's unlimited uh, but. But we'll see. I, I don't know. I've been I've been wrong about a lot of things. Well, there certainly was a uh, the beginnings of a trend, maybe fifteen years ago, for some of the newer ballparks to be smaller, um, or at least less seating capacity. We should say. Yes, uh, that's the distinction to make because the footprints are not. The footprints bad. are still large, but yeah, they you know I think about the the one in Pittsburgh, which I think is thirty five thousand yeah. seats or something yeah. like that. San Francisco is like what forty two yeah. or something like that. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see what plays out. Um, with this situation with the Royals, because they're uh, they're kind of at the epicenter or have been for a lot of these uh, changes for 50 years, uh, because Kauffman Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium really broke the mold of the the shared use donut, uh, and then the entire sports architecture industry essentially uh, was created here and revolves around Kansas City, which is a pretty absolutely pretty incredible. I mean, for locally, for selfish people in Kansas City, it's wonderful. It's created a yeah, you know, a ton of business and everything else. But a lot of those new stadiums were designed by Kansas City firms, and now as it comes back around to replacing or potentially replacing Kauffman, it's going to be interesting to see what that model looks like for a small market like Kansas City. Yeah, there must be huge competition for that. Oh yeah. Uh, that job. I mean, it's just, uh, and not just in Kansas city, but, but, but especially in Kansas city. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, they're, I, you know, really, the, the team has been working with Populous pretty closely on yeah. that. We'll see how things evolve when we, yeah. when we designed and built a new arena here downtown, uh, about 
um, that must have been about 15 years ago, they basically created a consortium of local sports architects to kind of work together on it in, in order yeah. to spread the wealth a little bit, which which was smart. Yeah. And yeah, we'll see what happens so. with a potentially billion dollar uh, endeavor for a new baseball stadium. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's yeah, it's really hard to say what happens. I mean, again, a lot of the I'm a, I'm a big believer that a lot of the most innovative um, stuff happens in, you know, not on the coasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, even the third coast. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, so it's, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it'll, that it'll be very interesting to see how that, how that plays out given, given all the history that you've described and all the history that you're, yeah. you are embedded in. So, well, Phil, um, We've done about an hour. I'm loath to bring up another topic because I've got two or three other topics in mind, but I know we'll spend at least another half an hour getting into them. I really, you know, we'll have to do this at a future date because I'd love to dive more into the whole question of like land value taxation, which is something I know you're really interested Mm -hmm. in. Uh, yeah. and uh, a lot of work you've done related to, uh, coding and planning, uh, and the tie in between those, those, those topics. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah, there's the whole there's the whole aspect of my career that that uh, of that trajectory that that uh, city baseball magic set me on. It's because yeah. it's it's like a microcosm of my interest in Chicago. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, and we can certainly talk about Chicago a lot as well, and uh, yeah. which I, I I still maintain is the best big city in America, and uh, we just happened to visit there uh, a few weeks ago for a conference, and just again uh, remarked at what an incredible. Uh, an incredible city it is, uh, and and so livable for a big city uh, as well. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we could we true. we have other things to discuss, but I I think we I'm... we should probably wrap this version. Uh, so what I do like to do is I have uh, uh, I ask my guests a final question. Uh, since I call this the Messy City Podcast, I like to ask people what comes to mind uh, when I use that phrase, which uh, I obviously is meant to. Uh, sort of be an homage to places that are less perfectly planned and uh, uh, maybe more bottom up in nature. Uh, is there a, a neighborhood, a city, a place that immediately comes to mind when I when I talk about that for you? Well, m- most every place uh, that, that uh, at a certain scale. I mean, uh, most every place. Uh, of, of scale at any size. I mean, all, all the planned cities that are the centers and you're going to get a long answer here. The, <laughs> That's fine. All the, I, know, all, all the plans, I know, I know. Right. I'm sorry. So, I mean, all the, all the planned cities that become the center of big cities, right. They, they were all, they were all actually planned, but, but the way that they grew was messy. And so if you ask me about messy city, as opposed to say, thinking of, small town or mm-hmm. village or hamlet which again have a similar form but it's not they're not as messy mm-hmm. um that that the messy city is about the, i think the things that i think about are words like um subsidiarity and distributism and localism mm-hmm. right and these are all um they're they're actually all parts of um uh, a philosophical uh view of the world that kind of is about it's about decentralized power. It's about multiple centers. It's about a lot of people with the freedom to do a lot of projects, but they don't do them as individuals. They do them as um, kind of 
subsidiary subsidiary groups within the city. And again, and it's really for me, this really goes back to Aristotle because Aristotle, you know, he says that the best life for human beings is the life of moral and intellectual virtue lived in community with others and typically in a city, in a polis. What he means by polis, again, is something about the size of a neighborhood. And, and the, way he, what, the way that he defines a polis is as a community of communities. Hmm. And, and so he says, uh, you know, every community seeks some good, the polis, because it seeks the highest good as a community of communities is the highest, is the highest you know, human community that, that we have. So, uh, so those are the words that I, that's what I think of when I, when I hear messy city. I love it, by the way. I'm, and which is, you know, it, it confuses some people because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in urban design. I'm right. interested in, in sort of uh, and planning. planning public space. Yeah. 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 But, but it's, but there have to be a lot of actors. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, a, which also kind of creates a common culture. So, so I, I love messy city. Well, that's what I think. You're speaking my language there. And it just makes me make a note to think that uh, all, we need to also talk in greater depth about subsidiarity, subsidiarity and localism at some point. I would be happy to do that. I would I would love to come back. It's been a privilege to be here today. So thank you for the invitation. Well, thanks so much. It's great to see you again uh, after too much time uh, away. So Philip Bess, thanks very much. Take care. My pleasure. You too, Kevin.